Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, my guest today is Marsha Bjornrud, who has written the following. Timefulness includes a feeling for distances and proximities in the geography of deep time. Focusing simply on the age of the earth is like describing a symphony in terms of its total measure count. Without time, a symphony is a heap of sounds. The durations of notes and recurrence of themes give it shape. Similarly, the grandeur of Earth's story lies in the gradually unfolding interwoven rhythms of its many movements, with short motifs scampering over tones that resonate across the entire span of the planet's history. Marsha Bjornrud is Professor of Geology and Environmental Studies at Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin. A frequent contributor to the New Yorker's blog, she is the author of Reading the Rocks, The Autobiography of the Earth, and Timefulness, How Thinking Like a Geologist Can Help Save the World. And that second book is the subject of our conversation today. Marsha Bjornrud, welcome to Historically Thinking. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, when I saw your book, I immediately, uh, I skimmed it and I thought, ha, huh, someone is thinking about geology the way I and, and my teachers have thought about history, that there's such a thing as historical thinking. Um, and there is there such a thing then as geological thinking? Um, absolutely. And I think that it's the habit of seeing the world in four dimensions, recognizing huh that the past is very much with us and being able to envision ourselves as inhabiting geologic time. One of the, my favorite, you say seeing in Fort Bent, that's lovely. Um, one of my favorite parts of the book is where you describe, say, going to the Baraboo Hills or Svalbard um, in the, above the Arctic Circle and what you see there. So when you look around uh, Appleton, um, I don't think it, I'm, it's, probably, it's not as interesting geologically, perhaps, along Lake Winnebago as it is in the Baraboo Hills. But what, what do you see at, when you look out at, say, Lake Winnebago? Well, one of the metaphors that I, I often use in teaching, and I, I use it in the book as well, is that of a palimpsest manuscript. Mm-hmm. I'm sure historians are very familiar with that idea yeah. um, when uh, texts were written on parchment, there was a large incentive to recycle, to essentially reuse those parchments because they were very labor intensive to make. And so often old texts would be scraped off and re-inked, but inevitably some vestige of of the earlier texts would remain. And and in fact, many um, ancient books that we have really exist only as these palimpsests. And I think that's a powerful metaphor for the way that we geologists look out on landscapes. So even in a place like eastern Wisconsin, where we don't have really dramatic topography or um, fabulous outcrops, we can see the record of multiple agents acting on the landscape, the glaciers, more recent river erosion, and then, of course, the, the modern changes in the land that humans have have caused over the last few thousand years. So when I'm driving around, my wife has, has told me I'm always, I have my glasses on and I'm looking, I'm looking sort of almost casually at houses, um, at traces of roadways, 
um, estimating whether or not this, how old the road I'm driving on is by the sort of the bank on either side, you, you must be doing the same all the time. Absolutely. It's very dangerous to drive with us geologists, <laughs> maybe historians too, because yeah. we're out wrenching around to see outcrops on the side of the road. And yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you can't help it. Once you learn to read a landscape, you can't learn to unread. Yes. It's like any other kind of reading. Um, mm -hmm. You can't really pass a billboard if you can read uh, without at least it sinking, at least some part of your mind seeing it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you, you speak of timefulness. What, what is timefulness? And I, I take that to be at the heart of your sort of the, your, your idea of geological thinking. Well, it's it's obviously kind of a rhyme with two things. First, timelessness, which we think of as as something we want to aspire to. We want things to be eternal and unchanging. And I argue that that is, first of all, kind of a sterile idea. Things aren't very interesting if they never change. There's no story arc to them, no development. But secondly, it's also a kind of, it's a dangerous idea. Um, if we don't acknowledge the time-shaped nature of the world, we put ourselves again and again into peril, whether it's ignoring um, the looming reality of climate change or um, living on a river's floodplain. So mm -hmm. things do change. They are shaped by time. And if we don't recognize that, for both pragmatic and philosophical reasons, we endanger ourselves. And then it's also a kind of a counterpoint to mindfulness, which which I think is a really good thing um, for individuals to be in the present moment, fully engaged with um, their environments. But it isn't necessarily the focus that we should have as a society to be focused always on the now. Um, so it's it's kind of pushing back against that idea as well, that we need to have a longer window of reference as a society than just the now. So let's get to geological time. You use the term deep time. What do you mean by deep time? Just long, long ago? I should credit John McPhee yeah. with that phrase that he evocatively <laughs> described the way geologists think about time with that geographic, that in a physical sense. So deep time is geologic time, um, which embraces all of human history, but but the eons that preceded it. Um, so it's a sense not just of the great duration of Earth's history, but also what happened during that time. And I use the Greek contrast between, between chronos, which is just raw measure of time, billions of years, and kairos, which is time within a narrative. And I think we geologists have overemphasized maybe just the raw numbers, and that's very alienating and off-putting for people. And we need to do a better job of filling in those vast eons with plots and protagonists. And, and that's really the way geologists think about time. What If, if I look at a rock, I'm, I'm really aware of where in the great narrative arc of Earth's history it fits. Yet, um, part of the um, the dizzying quality of reading your book or any or John McPhee's wonderful books on traveling across the continent, um, or just thinking about what I'm looking at when I hike in the Blue Ridge, is the staring back into abyss of years and trying to um, imagine 
something like the Blue Ridge that's been there for know, 500 million years. I still can't get a, quite a, a grip on how old it is. Some of the rocks are actually twice that old. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and it's uh, it, that's that's that sense then of I, I guess that of timelessness that seems um, almost incapacitating uh, for a human to contemplate. Right, but I guess I I would invoke the historical habit. You you feel as historians some kind of relationship with cultures and civilizations that that far preceded us. And and if you can just kind of stretch that imagination back in time. And again, I think it's not just putting numbers on and ages on rocks and geological phenomena, but understanding the stories that those rocks tell. So another favorite mantra I have for teaching intro geo, especially, is that rocks are not nouns just objects, they're verbs, or at least yeah. records of processes. And when you start thinking of them, them that way, um, they, they are almost animate. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we can engage with them, even if they are very ancient. We see resonances with the world that they knew in our own time. Yeah, you speak of your, your love for certain old rocks <laughs> um, versus the sort of Johnny-come-lately um, these are the, these are rocks with stories and experience, I guess, with 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 old and interesting faces. Exactly, and some wisdom possibly for yeah. us. Yeah, what rocks are like that? Well, metamorphic rocks. So there are three big categories that most people are familiar with: igneous rocks, which are kind of the parents of all the other rocks from forged from magmas that crystallize. Then sedimentary rocks, which are the eroded bits and pieces of of pre-existing rocks. And then the third category, metamorphic rocks, can have either of those two origins, but they have a more complex life story. They were born in one environment, maybe as a marine sediment, but then typically through tectonics and mountain building, they find themselves in a very different environment, and they have to change in response to different pressure, temperature, fluid conditions. And then, at least if we've investigated them, they've they've come back to the surface somehow, and we can read both parts of their life story, sometimes maybe more than two stages in their life story. And so they're the, the really interesting ones. They, they allow us to make inferences about the deep crust, to essentially visit places we can't actually gain access to ourselves. Um, so those are the ones that I find most fascinating. They're the most complex and nuanced texts. You... Um suggest, uh, as I understand you uh, in your argument, that um, some of this emphasis on timelessness came about in the 19th century as uh, Hutton and others were arguing for a much older Earth than people had been uh, understood or pre- prepared to understand. Is that, is, have I got that right? Well, yeah, interestingly, Hutton, James Hutton, who was sort of on the fringes of the Edinburgh Enlightenment in the late um, 18th century, did give us deep time. He recognized very perceptively um, how to read some complicated rocks in Scotland and and postulated very radically in his time that the earth was in fact infinitely old, mm-hmm. um, which isn't correct, but, but compared with the 6,000 or so years that was biblically ordained, you know, effectively that was true. <laughs> Um, but interestingly, Hutton wasn't particularly interested in um, calibrating time 
putting a number on the age of the earth or figuring out exactly what happened in any kind of chronological order, which has been the job of geologists ever since. So in a sense, he he did think of kind of a timeless earth that was endlessly cycling and recycling. Um, but then it fell to 19th century geologists to sort of put the story together. And, and how, so you're describing then a process of, of, well, of fits and starts and progress and regress. Um, what are some of the of, of the key points for you in that trying to grapple with how to measure geological time and how is it done? Um, so in the history of geology, yeah, how yeah, in the history of geology, yes. right? So in the nineteenth century, at least Hutton expanded the time available. If 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 in the West, the main document that had been seen as a scientific reference point was the Bible. And if you only have a few thousand years to work with, when you look around at landscapes, you must invoke really catastrophic events. So prior to Hutton in the West, um, Noah's flood was often invoked as, as the explanation for odd observations like fossils being found high above sea level in mountains. Um, then Hutton gave us this immense span of time to work with. And then in the 19th century, it really, the, the primary way that time was calibrated was by the observation of a very consistent sequence of marine fossils that could be seen initially in the UK and then further into the European continent. And so fossils were sort of the global page numbers that led to the development of the first relative geologic timescale. And that's one of the reasons that we still have this slightly skewed um, idea of geologic time, because it's really only the last one-ninth of Earth's history that can be calibrated using visible fossils. <laughs> that was what the Victorians had to work with. Subsequently... So, so with, using that lovely metaphor, we've got this book, and <laughs> as we're flipping backwards, each layer that we see when we're going through a, like a highway cut... Uh, say in the in the in on the on the interstate, we're going through the Blue Ridge, the Rockies, and we can see the folded layers of the Earth, and each one is a page number. Is that exactly? Uh, yeah. yeah. And as we go, and at least initially in the 19th century, by people realized, ah, look at that, the same fossils are in this layer here in Wyoming as they are over there in Dover uh, or someplace in Cornwall or Scotland. Is that is that? Sort of yes, right. Going on. And that was a re that must have been a tremendous aha moment to realize that that page number was continuous in different places. Very much. But then you get down to the lowest rocks that have visible fossils, and there aren't any more page numbers. Yeah. <laughs> and those rocks are also typically quite complexly deformed or recrystallized or metamorphosed. And so we have this pretty well calibrated time scale from Cambrian time on, and then everything. Before that was called Precambrian, <laughs> and now we realize that that's eight nights of Earth's story. So, and it's only been with the advent of understanding radioactive decay, and then how that is, in a sense, a clock that can be used to determine how long ago particular minerals crystallized, that we've been able to calibrate geologic time quantitatively. You have a lovely couple pages on the Jack Hills zircons and the importance of the the Jack Hills Zircon paper, which is a phrase that I never thought I would say in my life. <laughs> um, didn't know it was possible. But it was, uh, could, these, these you say, are the, the Zircons from the Jack Hills of Australia are the oldest objects on Earth. 
Right. So we don't actually have rocks. If by rocks we mean some extensive exposure of, um, you know, bedrock, we that are from the first 500 million years of Earth's history. That's from 4.5 to 4.0 billion years ago. We don't really have any rock record. But amazingly, a few crystals of this very tough mineral zircon have been found in an ancient sandstone in Western Australia, and they give ages of as great as 4.4 billion years. And so they are the very oldest Earth objects that we can get our hands on. What did their discovery, what did their, what did that do to geology? You said it's the most cited paper in the last? One of the most cited because of its, you know, claim to being the oldest. It's kind of grail for geologists mm -hmm. to, to find the, the oldest object. So what it did is give us the only insight we really have into what surface conditions on the early Earth might have been like. And first of all, it, they, the zircon, the mineral zircon typically occurs in granitic rocks, which are not actually easy to make. They, they require multiple stages of partial melting and remelting of, of the mantle material. And so there's some hint that even on this very ancient earth, we might have had something like continental crust, which is interesting. And secondly, this paper, um, pretty arcane <laughs> geochemical arguments, but the zircon crystals bear some geochemical evidence that there was liquid water involved in their generation. So that too is a bit of a surprise because people had envisioned that maybe the early earth was like what we think the early moon was like, a very high temperature magma ocean we know existed on the early moon, but the existence of liquid water on early earth really calls that into question. So these zircons, even though they're tinier than the width of a human hair, <laughs> um, have archived information that gives us a, just a glimpse of what the earliest Earth might be like. So these, like, uh, these objects are smaller than human hair. What I'm hearing as a historian is a story goes with them. Absolutely. Uh, there's a story of, of water and there's a story of crust. There's a story. Yeah, it's, it's that's just absolutely fascinating. Um, the pace of the Earth, you write, we are finding that the pace of the planet is neither as slow nor as constant as was previously thought. Uh, could you please explain that? Yeah, and so some of this harkens right back to the earliest days of geology again, where geologists had to be vigilant to dispel this idea that geologic change was catastrophic. <laughs> so um, the intellectual successor to James Hutton was Sir Charles Lyell, who wrote this great treatise, Principles of Geology. And it was really kind of one long <laughs> repetition of the same argument, which was that the earth has been shaped by incomprehensibly slow incremental processes over immensely long periods of time. And that's, that's mostly true, but his um, sort of, ex his, his shadow <laughs> cast was was cast far into the 20th century when it began to be clear that there probably were catastrophic events that that had shaped the earth and it really wasn't until 1980 yeah. when the dinosaur extinction was explained by meteorite impact that geologists finally started to accept the idea that once in a while bad things happen to good planets and and change can be catastrophically fast so for years, it was kind of taboo in geology to ever invoke anything that smacked of something like a Noachian flood. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Um, and now we recognize there's a whole spectrum of, of rates of processes, in, whether we're talking about the climate system or the tectonic system. In the main, things happen sort of slowly and at a stately pace, but there are then times when um, that tempo is greatly accelerated. And all of these things collectively have shaped the earth and continue to shape the earth. In the, I mean, it's a fascinating episode in intellectual history and the history of science, um, how from the one extreme, the idea that all was stasis except for one thing, one catastrophe, um, to uh, stasis without catastrophe, mm, to, yeah, the, to, to the evidence building up, building up, building up, building up. And you saw the same thing happen because of the evidence that is coming from the same pages um, with the punctuated equilibrium theory of Stephen Jay Gould. Um, that uh, there must have been moments of evolutionary explosions. Um, mm -hmm. And likewise, a, uh, a fear that uh, that would, that would be, uh, that's opening the door, door for Noah's flood and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. and that was the problem with the comet, that the comet that killed the asteroids and people's almost religious um, refusal to accept that evidence. Mm -hmm. um, really fascinating. Um, what are some other examples then, besides comets and asteroids, of these of these um, these catastrophes, um, like the Yellowstone caldera? That's one. Um, there's good evidence in the geologic record that Yellowstone and and a few other volcanoes around the world have had um, eruptions that have simply not been witnessed in historic times. Perhaps more pertinently. <laughs> um, evidence from the geologic record of rapid climate change in the past caused not by humans, but by analog natural processes that, that occurred much more rapidly than we envisioned in the past. Um, so in almost every earth system that we look at, we see that there are, there's, again, this spectrum of behaviors and, and some, most of them luckily <laughs> are fairly, um, pedestrian in their rates. And that's one reason that the biosphere generally does fine. But when things change quickly, then um, evolution has not prepared the biosphere for those rapid changes. And we often see extinction events. One, th these, are, I'm not thinking of an extinction event, but as I was, well, actually I am, um, as I've been, I've been thinking about a project uh, related to the history of Virginia. And I wanted to talk about geology. I want to talk about before there were people. Um, so this led me down a long, deep rabbit hole into your world, uh, which is how I came across your book. And one of the amazing things that there was a, a comet or at least a very large asteroid that hit the what's now the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay about 50 million years ago um, and probably killed all mammalian life within 600 miles. It was uh, that ca catastrophic of an explosion. But it, as I was thinking about this, it began to occur to me that while not a catastrophe in this sense, the end of the Ice Age was pretty epic um, in North America. Um, in fact, I don't think I can understand human history in North America without understanding the end of uh, a sudden and abrupt end of the Ice Age. Um, so, for example... It's impossible for me to understand United States history as I know it without the Ohio River. Um, and yet the Ohio River, as I understand, is a product of the melt of the Ice Age. It's impossible for me to understand westward expansion without the Ohio River and the Great Lakes. Yet the Great Lakes are, you know, by your standards, just happened, you know, just happened a couple seconds ago. 
or a minute, whatever, however we want choose to parse that. Um, and yet these are these geographical facts um, are of immense importance to human history, and yet they happened really quickly by geological standards. And they're still in formation. They're not in some final state. And I right. think that's the, the important implication of a geologic worldview is it's it's not just about the past. It's <laughs> it's telling us just something about the way the planet works. And yeah, yeah, yeah. so the, I mean, the Chesapeake Bay is uh, such a new phenomenon. Um, when people first came to Virginia, they were living in a very different environment and they were living I don't know, 30 miles, 40 miles out from where the coastline of the Atlantic is now. Um, and the Chesapeake Bay was the Susquehanna River. And now it's not. Um, these things didn't happen within human memory, but they happened within human experience. It's a, it, 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 does, it does show the ways in which we can experience geological time in ways that I hadn't thought before. Yeah, we, we tend to see the natural world as just this passive backdrop mm. and not a central protagonist in our stories. <laughs> and, and that, to me, is, is one of the reasons we've gotten ourselves into such environmental difficulty, because we, we don't respect nature's agency as an actor that's, that's you know, very much engaged with, with what we do. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the Anthropocene. This is a, a term that was come up really recently, just in 2002, uh, by Paul Crutzen. Um, what does it mean? Um, and, and you regard it as a helpful concept, um, but we'll get to that. Why? First of all, what does it mean? Well, the idea is that we may have entered a new geological interval, and it would be at the epic level, so something comparable to the Holocene, which is all of human history so far, or the Pleistocene, the Ice Ages. Um, in which humans are first-order geologic agents. I think that's the, the most general way to, to state it. Mm. Um, so there's been a great deal of discussion amongst, um, I think amongst geologists, certainly amongst anthropologists and so on, how to chronicle it. Um, is it agriculture that creates this? Is it nuclear weapons? What, how, how do you think about, when, when do you think of it as beginning well, and I don't have skin in this game. Some people have, I don't know if you've read the, the, the exchange. Peter Brannon has had an article in the Atlantic, and then there's been sort of responses to that in the last couple of months. Um, I do use the term in my teaching because I think it embodies, it's a shorthand for the idea that something has changed mm-hmm. in perhaps the last 50 to 100 years, that we as humans have accelerated biogeochemical cycles, orders of magnitude above their background rates. Um, We have introduced into the environment some compounds that never existed in nature before. We have liberated metals and other things that normally leak out very slowly due to erosion and weathering. So I, I use it as a conceptual tool. I'm not somebody who's deeply engaged with how exactly to define it. And I guess the, you know, the, crux is, the crux of the argument is when did humans begin to seriously affect climate and other components of the Earth system? I would say that in terms of um, real magnitude of effects, I, I do think it's sometime in the last century. The, the, the population, human population, 
exploded and the scale and global nature of industrial activity grew by orders of magnitude in that time. So it makes sense to me to choose some time in the middle of the 20th century as the start. But yeah, again, I don't know. I, it seems to be kind of a, an academic yeah. <laughs> part of the game. Well, I mean, it has, it has, it has real implications. Um, it, it seems to me this is sort of the, and I mean this in the best possible way, the double-mindedness that's required when thinking about timefulness. Mm -hmm. um, there's a way in which uh, we have to, you're, you're arguing that we need to realize the effects that we have upon an old earth um, and yet also realizing um, that we are being affected, um, that we are not purely agents. We have to realize our agency uh, for good and for ill, um, but we also have to realize that we are often subjects of the forces of the earth and that we have failed to realize that. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, some people who object to the idea of the Anthropocene have suggested that it's kind of narcissistic or vain. And I mean, I just think that's the, the wrong take on it. It's a, it's a warning that um, our place in nature is changing because of our own activities to our own peril. It's not claiming that now we're in charge. In fact, we are relinquishing any kind of control over our future by ignoring the magnitudes of our effect on these natural systems. So to me, again, it's conceptually a useful thing. And um, the only reason we would care about defining it is for our own use anyway. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, yeah, I, 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 I guess I can answer. I mean, I, I have thought of it as sort of narcissistic and vain. Um, it can be. Mm. Um, if and I, I can see that in, in some bright young things that I've taught when I mentioned sort of casually the medieval warm period or the little ice age, um, they are quite startled and think that I must be a global warming denier. <laughs> um, and I'm trying to, no, 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 this is, this is like this ice house earth concept. And this gets them, I mean, how did there were, how was there an ice age? And how was there a warming after the ice age? And so they, they have, they've come to see, I think through well-intentioned um, teachers They've come to see the earth as basically a sort of tennis ball that human agents bat around, um, that it's kind of helpless and um, we can kind of do to it. We, we're doing to it as we like, and um, it's probably too late anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, there, so there is a there is then that sort of is a narcissism that leads to despair, which is not good. Um, yeah. That's my that, that is what I've seen, at least in the classroom. Um, let's, uh, let's move on to this, the mindfulness that uh, comes from timefulness. Uh, can you talk about your little, when you shattered the tourmaline crystal? Um, yeah, I, I use that. Wonderful anecdote. So the context is, um, one of the rites of passage for, for geoscientists, at least in my generation, it's, it's going away a little bit now, but, um, was this thing called field camp which is a little bit like a boot camp, frankly, in, in the bad old days, <laughs> where typically um, geo majors would spend about eight weeks somewhere out in the western U.S. where there's real geology and you'd be doing mapping and um, cross-sections, um, 
in a you know usually a pretty primitive living situation. Yeah, the the geologists, uh, the geology students at Augustana College are always so proud that they they do that. There is there yeah. is de- definitely it's it's definitely boot camp. It's like they talk about the way Marines talk about Paris Island. It was awful, but boy, now we're real geologists. Yeah, yeah. So it's an immersive experience. It's really this kind of introduction to being a professional geologist and. Once every week we'd have a day off and we were my own field camp through the University of Minnesota was was in southwestern Colorado, which has um, a remarkable number of abandoned mines way up in the mountains. And there was one that was in an old pegmatite, which is a particular type of igneous rock that has outsized crystals. I'm sure people have seen pegmatite mineral um specimens in rock shops and things they they often have the beautiful purple quartz variety amethyst and often um green minerals and pink and pastel colors so we were up there sort of unauthorized picking around and um i had my eye on this particular mineral called tourmaline which is a beautiful semi-precious gem stone it's usually hexagonal prismatic shapes and it can come in many colors, including really exotic um, watermelon combination with a green exterior and a pink interior. And I was chipping away with kind of a, a blunt rock hammer, just thinking, I'm going to get this thing and give it a wonderful little prize. And in a fraction of a second, I had just shattered it. It was just reduced to, to fragments. And I suddenly just had this horrible feeling of being a marauder, um, destroyer, and just couldn't bear to, to do any more. And I, it really was a very visceral experience that I use as a, an analog to the, the larger damage we're doing to um, the planet with our insouciant and ignorant um, behaviors. <laughs> we... Um... We bond around looking for something pretty and then we smash it. Yeah, and have really no sense of what it took for that thing to um, come down to us until it's gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, there's that, there, one, one might be tempted to despair by reading um, your chapter, your fifth chapter on um, the great, great, accelerator, great accelerations. Um, because it doesn't seem like you believe there's much that we can do about the sort of, of damage that we've done to um, the atmosphere, to the to the planet through uh, carbon dioxide. Well, I hope I'm, I'm. It saddens me to hear that it, you read it as completely pessimistic. I I hope that um, in the final chapter I offer maybe some glimpse yeah. <laughs> of how. And certainly, you probably encounter this in your teaching too. It's it's really a challenge to find the right narrative these days between conveying the urgency of the situation we're in and the urgency for action um, and not depriving people of some hope that that things can change. So I I walk that knife edge every time I talk about climate change in the classroom. And, And like you, I have students who kind of have just resign themselves to the idea that, that nothing can be done. It's, it's too late. They're inheriting a planet that is, is compromised beyond um, rescue. Which I, and I, I don't I think it leads, like, quickly leads to a sort of madness, uh, really. Um, yeah. I think it's because oftentimes I find them that they're, um, 
they're citing data which I think you know IPCC and then more rep and reputable bodies sort of th think is too extreme. But anyway, there's a, it leads to a sort of a, really a sort of a almost environmental nihilism, mm -hmm. which is very troubling. Yeah, I mean, I we're, this is not really a conversation about policy strategies, but I the the one thing that really could change things quickly is some kind of carbon tax. I mean, that would change behaviors overnight yeah. no, absolutely. <laughs> and could leverage the kinds of, of changes we need. So, I mean, I, I'm still hopeful that, that perhaps sometime in the not too distant future, we're going to wake up and we're going to do the right thing and we can set ourselves on a much better path. But, but the overall drift that I, that I got from that chapter, though, in, in taking this to, to historical thinking is... Um, Intellectual humility seems all very well and good, but very boring. Um, who, I mean, who learns in grad school how to be intellectually humble? <laughs> it's not part of the curriculum. It turns out to be, however, very necessary for life. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I, I mean, it may not be people's perception of geologists. We are implicated in <laughs> um, oil and gas and mineral exploitive industries, but I, but there is a kind of humility that you do develop in spending time with rocks and the geologic record. Um, it, because it, you're reminded of your mortal nature, I suppose, all the time. Yeah. That's the one, one of the wonderful things about John McPhee's writings in geology is that, uh, they operate as a sort of, um, in some ways, a sort of secular gospel, <laughs> um, a call to recognizing, uh, realizing who you are, oh man. Right. Um, and, and, and it's not just alienating, though. It, it, it's, it's a sense that we're part of this grand continuum. Mm -hmm. And I think many geologists, even if they, they don't really give voice to it, geology is more than just um, an intellectual exercise. It's a worldview mm -hmm. <laughs> that does inform them as humans. Let's finish off um, discussing um, the Sturgeons of Lake Winnebago. Um, in fact, uh, I didn't tell you this, but this podcast will be edited in Appleton, Wisconsin, uh, hmm. so <laughs> which is where my sound editor lives. Um, oh. And uh, thanks to the internet. And uh, so I, I, I thought it was very appropriate to end. You have a lovely anecdote about the Sturgeons of Lake Winnebago and uh, inform me about something I did not know. I did not know there were Sturgeons and that lake, which you people for some reason named after a recreational vehicle, and, mm. and that also that sturgeons uh, that that sturgeon fishing is uh, physically demanding, uh, as well as uh, I would say spiritually and emotionally demanding, um, because it takes a long time for the sturgeon to even show up, and then you have to work really hard to get it. Could you explain that? And and you have the little anecdote you, you you give in chapter six about the sturgeon. Well, I chose that anecdote because it, it's actually a good example how different kinds of people can come together and um, do the right thing in terms of preserving a natural system. So, yes, there are very large lake sturgeon in this, in this lake um, that's the largest inland lake in, in Wisconsin. And um, for decades in the early part of the 20th century, there was pretty much unlimited harvesting of the sturgeon any time of year, both for the, the flesh of the fish and, and the, the roe uh, caviar, I guess. Mm -hmm. But by the 50s, the, the population had plummeted and people realized 
something needed to be done or the fish would, would be hunted to extinction. And so um, the State Department of Natural Resources, the, the really avid fishing clubs, um, got together and determined what the harvest quotas should be each year. And um, so, so each year at certain sites around this lake where the sturgeon tend to congregate, whole towns sprout up on the, on the ice on the lake, <laughs> tens of thousands of, of huts that um, are built on top of rather large holes in the ice. It's, it's not like ice fishing. You normally think of some solitary guy sitting on an inverted bucket out on the lake, <laughs> have augured a little hole into the ice. These are large rectangular holes about two and a half by four feet in wow. dimensions. You could definitely fall into them. <laughs> But then they, they put these ice huts on top with, with really usually no lighting in them. And it's just the ambient light that shines, the sunlight that shines through the snow and ice on the lake and then reflects off the shallow lake bottom that illuminates these huts. And so it's a really kind of otherworldly setting inside these ice shanties. And the, the fishing is done not with poles, but with spears that are tridents, essentially, They're quite long, scandal. Yeah. yeah. And so it involves just sitting there waiting for a sturgeon to swim um, through the little window in the ice that you have and being ready at that moment to plunge the spear in with enough force to bring it up. And these, these fish can be 50, 100, 200 pounds. Wow. And some of them, they, their ages can be determined. And in fact, the DNR is there to weigh and to age and to sex all these fish. Some of their ages based on the dorsal fin um, bone, which has rings like tree rings. Some of these fish are more than a century old. And so they keep track of the demographics of the fish that are taken and the sex of the fish, um, the number of fish, obviously. And if the quota for any of those categories is hit, the season ends, sometimes just hours after it starts. Sometimes this year it actually did go on for several weeks because the water was very cloudy during the fishing season. And so people did not get many fish. And I don't think the quota was even reached. But it's, a, it's an example of um, – uh, it's a success story in, in natural resources management that everybody agrees to a set of rules. And, and the reward for that is that this sturgeon fishery has remained healthy um, for decades. It's also an example to you of the way that we connect with time. So you describe people clustering around the DNR station, and as the uh, as the dorsal fins are being examined, they're saying this one's this one's older than great grandma. Um, this one was hatched when Coolidge was president. Uh, yeah. So people are reaching out and, and touching the past uh, when they see this. They, they really are. It's very touching to see. It's it's you know even if people aren't involved with the fishing themselves, people come to see the fish being pulled out of the water and they're big and, and quite primeval looking. And people do feel this sense of connection and this amazing feeling that those fish are down there all the time. And it's only during this sort of two week period in February that we can touch the past <laughs> that uh, they represent. Uh, and it's not easy. You describe someone, some people have waited 30 seasons without managing to get one. And I can imagine that some other <laughs> people have tried to have launched and missed or have, you know, lost the spear, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. So there's another there's another aspect of time and waiting and, and so, sort of living with living in proximity to these fish that have gotten away. 
there's there's restraint. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it has to be earned through patience. You, you write also in, in words that makes a historian's heart sing. Um, As permanent exiles from the past, we have mixed emotions about it. We allow ourselves moments of nostalgia, but scold people for living in the past. The prevailing consensus is that the past must in fact be abolished to make way for better things. Do you remember those old flip phones? We caution each other about becoming Luddites, slipping backward, returning to the dark ages. But stranded on the island of now, we are lonely. When I see people crowded together in the cold each year to see big, old, ugly fish being weighed, I sense a very unmodern yearning to connect with the past. That's lovely writing, by the way. Just, just lovely. Makes me, it made me very envious when I read that. Um, you draw upon the wonderful concept of weird and connect that to Sturgeon. Could you explain what you mean by weird? So I have a Scandinavian background, and I've always been fascinated by first mythology. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so the idea of Viot is broadly the power of the past to shape the present and the future. So the Norse stories are really kind of strange if you if you try to think about them. It's not clear have they happened already? Are they going to happen in the future? And so I use that as just one. Um, cultural tradition that I'm familiar with that suggests um, alternate relationships with time. And certainly there must be other cultures around the world, I'm not an anthropologist, (laughs) but that do have a more nuanced um, understanding of time. And, and, you know, if we're honest with ourselves as as individuals, we're traveling back and forth in time in our minds all the time. Mm. And so what I'm trying to, to articulate in that section of the book is to um, get rid of this peculiar, I think, modern idea that the past is gone, it's burned up in good riddance, and and learn to occupy multiple times, in our minds at least, because it, it keeps us humble, it keeps things in perspective. I think a lot of psychological ills that we suffer from in modern society do come from this disjunction that we feel with the past. And I would argue not just the historic past, but with our, our roots in natural history. My guest today has been Marcia Yornerud. She's author of Timefulness, How Thinking Like a Geologist Can Help Save the World. Marcia, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. It's been a pleasure. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Brunat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.